You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week, we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as a rules-based investor. And if you are new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Moritz, where we had so many great questions from uh, our community and where we also went through the recent massive up and down trend in lumber and how a trend-following system like Moritz's has handled this kind of market action. Jerry, very excited to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How are things where you are in Florida? Uh, things are great here in Tampa, Florida. Our hockey team just won their second straight Stanley Cup championship, so we're very happy about that and we're excited for our boat parade on Monday to celebrate that sounds very nice indeed. Now, before we dive into this uh, week's short market wrap, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Steve-O, Henry, and Mark, whom I saw had left a really nice rating and review this week in iTunes. We're so grateful for these because they motivate us to keep going and they help us grow our community. And if I could ask those of you who have yet to leave a rating and review in iTunes, if you wouldn't, would you take some time out and do it uh, perhaps now and uh, come back to the conversation, we would be ever so grateful. Now, market volatility continued this week, despite the lack of Fed speakers throughout the whole week. However, the release of the FOMC minutes on Wednesday did unsettle the market somewhat. The minutes are usually as exciting as American cheese, but got the attention of the investors this time around. The message from Chairman Powell following the last FOMC meeting was that the Fed has begun to discuss tapering their open market asset purchases by reiterating that they will be patient, given their view that recent uptick in inflation is transitory. Reading through the minutes, it seems as though the various members are not fully in consensus with the chairman's message. Some members are more worried about inflation than others. Last fall, the Fed adopted what they have called Flexible Average Inflation Targeting, FAIT, which of course sounds awfully close to FIAT, which is fiat money. Anyway, this is a policy that gives them a fudge factor to work around higher than expected inflation. And from the minutes, it seems committee members have a difference of opinion on how flexible to be and, in turn, how soon to reverse their easy money policy. With that, it seems some members would like to begin tapering sooner. And I think it's likely that this might even happen in the fourth quarter of this year. The debate is likely to intensify this week, of course, with the CPI number scheduled for Tuesday and PPI for Thursday, followed by retail sales coming out on Friday. Also on the radar is the kickoff of the Q2 earnings seasons with companies like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs leading the way on Tuesday. And finally, perhaps uh, we shouldn't ignore the Delta variant, which is likely to stay top of mind and in the headlines. Let's talk about what has stood out to you, Jerry, since we last spoke a few weeks ago, either in terms of market moves or indeed in terms of anything exciting happening inside your portfolio. Well, first of all, I was raised on American cheese, but yeah, you're right. I'm not even sure it's real cheese, so I'm very <laughs> oh my thankful God. now. Don't that, say that. <laughs> I'm very thankful now that I've graduated to uh, more a diverse cheese group. But yeah, the markets have uh, not been that great for me. It's been a, uh, some counter trend moves against my long term trend following system. The grains have sold a bit. The dollar rally has uh, probably been the biggest move. That those markets trends never got that big like the grains did, but there has been some uh, retracement and maybe some liquidations and shorts in some of uh, maybe Aussie dollar, I'm trying to think. But I still maintain my shorts in the Swiss franc and the yen, long and strong in the LME metals, copper, aluminum, zinc, nickel, lead, tin. They're still looking really strong along with crude heating oil, unleaded, 
the new trades, uh, natural gas in the U.S. and U.K. natural gas. That's been a strong mover for us. Yeah, I tried to forget about lumber. I left that off a few minutes ago. But yeah, lumber, that did retrace on me. And it's kind of a painful give back. One of the, the weaknesses of the long-term approach is you stay in these trades. They, you build up these massive profits better than the shorter term or medium. But at the end, you might give back all of that built up or a lot of that build up more so than the shorter term look backs would, would do. So it's another reason that you often mention to trade multiple lookbacks and have uh, different entries and exits. Yeah, it was funny because I can't remember it was last week, I think maybe when I spoke with Moritz and we, and, and I might come back to this in a few minutes just uh, as a little update, but we did talk about how Rob was now short Bitcoin, you were still long last time we spoke and Moritz was flat. So again, we all have these slight different sort of tilts to how we do it and, and it can sometimes end up showing up with very different sort of positions from time to time. But we we may revisit that in a second. Just on our side this week, as you mentioned, I mean, the correction in many of the larger trends began a few weeks ago, certainly continued this week. We had commodities like corn, soybean, meal, wheat, sugar. They were all down more than 5% this week. Even energy markets gave back a little bit this, uh, this week and some of the equity markets that we trade as well. And then you had bonds where we were in a larger downtrend until February of this year. Then it started to counter trend rally and that continued throughout this week as well. So all in all on our side, everything was down except for meats and metals. They came out a little bit ahead for the week, but um, there we are. Yeah, the trend barometer also kind of confirmed what's going on right now. It finished at 36, which is certainly indicating a weak environment for trend followers. On the volatility side of things, the S&P 500 index had made all-time closing highs in eight out of the last nine trading sessions before it dropped 1.5% of the open on Thursday morning. And at the same time, we see uncertainty had increased sharply, and that actually led the VIX index to move from a reading of 15 to its high of 21.29, which is quite a large move compared to the small drop in the S&P 500. And since Thursday, pretty much, the S&P did nothing but spend time recovering. It recovered all of its losses from Thursday and especially Friday, finishing the week up slightly. And the VIX actually nevertheless had a slight up as well. And so on our side, we recorded a small loss of about 60 basis points for the week in our volatility trading. In my own trend-following model portfolio, where I can go into more details, it is up 1.48% for the month, which leaves it up 14.47% year-to-date. Performance this month breaks down. Group 1 models, classical trend, pretty much flat, up 7 basis points. Group 2, which has the long bias, 57 basis points. And then Group 3, which are these fast-reacting term models, up 84 basis points so far this month. Top three sectors so far, bonds, energy, and equities. And the worst sectors this month are currency, soft, and short-term interest rates. And if we drill down to the single markets this month, German Bunds, US 10-year notes, followed by NASDAQ, are the top three markets. And at the bottom this month, we see Japanese yens, the SPY, and the sh and short sterling. And then in terms of trading this week, the system started out the week by exiting a couple of long coffee positions for the Group 1 models, so classical trend models getting out there. And it also exited one long net gas position. And then it went short, oh, sorry, it went long, short sterling was what I meant to say, for a Group 2 model, and then finished the week with a new short entry in the Nikkei for one of the classical trend models. So to give uh, everyone an idea of where we are in terms of riskiness. The risk to stop level is down to 9.55%, which is uh, down about 2% compared to last week. And I think mainly it's a function of the fact that there are just fewer and fewer positions right now, and it's quite a concentrated portfolio in terms of equities and energies and a few other bits and bobs. So probably just fewer positions that keeps that number down. And there were only like six or seven trades uh, this week. Now, before we move on to a questions or some questions, actually, that came in from Omar, John and Mark, 
we talked about lumber and and you kind of referenced that a little bit to what Moritz and I spoke to uh, last week. Any changes on the Bitcoin trade on your side, Jerry, since we last spoke? No, you know, the Bitcoin trade sitting there and I don't have a lot of hope for it. I don't try to pattern recognition or look at it and see apart from just the trailing stop, but it's hard to sort of see how it to get too bullish because there doesn't seem to be rallies that it can hold. I did want to mention a point you made a few minutes ago about Moritz was short and I was still long and Rob was flat. Yeah, Rob yeah. was short and, and Moritz was flat, yeah. Yeah, so what I thought about was, you know, that happens internally with me. Like right. some of my systems can be long, some can be short, some can be flat. So I have this net position. And I think it may uh, confuse others that how can, why don't you have a conviction on this trade? Why don't you add up all of the indicators and have a consensus and just how can you have systems, profitable systems you claim to have uh, diametrically opposite positions. And um, it's the beauty of uh, systematic trading and trend following that all of these systems with the different look back periods and exit dates, exit uh, trailing stop uh, variables, they're all profitable. They all have an edge. They all make about the same amount of money over a long time frame. But it's this being able to diversify your entries and exits and even your positions really adds some value and some stability to the portfolio. So we're getting this diversification from all the markets and from the systems. And we're not conflicted. We're just trading a profitable system of, and the bets are the right bets. But they can uh, have different opinions at, uh, at some times. Yeah, no, that's a great point that there is this internal diversification inside each of our programs. So, and I think we might come to that. I think that was one of the points you wanted to bring up later, in, you know, in terms of short term versus long term and so on and so forth. So we can go into that a little bit more. Now, there are a couple of uh, people who wrote in, so we appreciate that. As I mentioned, Omar, John, and Mark had some questions so they wanted us to discuss. So let's uh, start out with Omar. And Omar writes in, one of the questions that seem to be recurring on the podcast, why trend following is not more popular and or has a higher percentage allocation. And Omar writes, I had I had heard this question and variations of it in different episodes too. It's an important question that needs answers and effective solutions until it becomes a more popular choice among investors and the percentage of allocation to trend following increases significantly within investors' portfolios it will be a mystery why it is not. As a newcomer to trend to the trend-following world, I would like to share my initial thoughts. I hope these thoughts contribute to uncover the mystery so that we can actually do something meaningful to change the outcome. In my case, I want my young adult children to learn about it so they can invest smartly too. And here comes the three reasons that Omar list. Number one, Barriers for entries are high, not suitable for retail or young investors. Amount of capital investment required. Futures, just these two remove from the possible universe of young people that want to learn about investing and have a smaller capital to invest. I'll mention the other two, Jerry, that you can give your comments on that. Second main reason, and th these are the options available. One, A, to invest with a CTA, or B, you need futures knowledge and large capital to start. While A is easier to do, again, this option excludes all young adults and small investors who want to learn and do themselves. And then number three, time dedication. How can, you, how can we educate new young investors to invest without the need to be full-time investors, but they can invest using trend-following principles? Is this possible? I think it is. And then Omar finishes off saying, for a sport, music, food, a culture to become popular and preferred in a country or region, it is absolutely necessary that children, teenagers, and young adults practice and enjoy them. So I wanted to add a little bit to that and ask you about this, Jerry, and that is if you think back, so we talk about the adoption curve not being great still after all these years, but I just wonder do you think, if you think about these circle of investors or people kind of doing this today, compared to those that we were dealing with maybe 30 years ago when, you know, when we were doing it as well, do you think there's been a change? I mean, is there something we can point to and say, yeah, okay, well, maybe we don't have a, a huge group of investors doing trend following yet, but there has been some 
positive development? Possibly, probably. But I'm distracted because the question is not what I thought it would be. And because when we talk about this, we talk about it in terms of institutional investors. And he's Mm -hmm. sort of asking the question in terms of individual people. And you have a large audience on this podcast. I get a, a fairly good audience for Clubhouse on my trend following Clubhouse. So of individuals, right? So there seems to be some interest. It's it's a fairly ease of entry, you know, to trend follow stocks in your Robinhood account. And I think a lot of people do that. So, but I think I'm more interested, or I think the big issue we always talk about is how do we become more than five or 10% of high net worth or institutional accounts? And we have not cracked that code yet. And we haven't done that. I think there's probably a lot of reasons, fees and lack of competitive performance versus the S&P. We've talked about diversification that we offer being punished. Every time the stock market crashes, we get short and then it's a V bottom and we lose on the short trade. And uh, after a little bit of uh, dust up, there doesn't seem to be a reason to even hedge. Uh, you should be buying those breaks and crashes in the S&P. So I think we will get back to a period around prior to 2008 where your firm and uh, Chesapeake could produce marketing material that showed that the CTA trend following made more money and had less risk than the S&P. And then that will open some eyes. I think education is great, but the lack of performance, I think, is pretty much the reason we're not a a bigger allocation. Because people understand, you know, how can the most diversified, the safest portfolio out there, the CTAs with great risk control, the ability to make money when the markets trend, have such a low allocation. And I think it a lot of it has to do with just the dominating stock markets we've seen since the end of 08. Yeah, so, so the way I remember the journey is that back when I started in, the, in around 1991 and all through, I'd like to say the 90s, I felt that it was an industry dominated by high net worth individuals, but not like we see it today. They all came through these big U.S. wirehouses, and they paid way too much for that for that journey, so to speak, through high fees and so on and so forth. And then around the late '90s, I seem to remember that then the institution started to kind of wanted to get into this game. And of course, in terms of amounts, you could see kind of a shift where the amounts uh, for the industry started to grow much faster. I mean, early 1990s were like $10 billion in total assets under management in, in, in CTAs, at least according to the official numbers. And I don't know what, what amounts we had officially around year 2000, but certainly, I, I seem to remember that there were a lot more institutional adoption. And of course, then came 2000, year 2000 and the first crisis, and then 2008 and second crisis. And I think that certainly helped a lot of institutional investors make the jump and, and get into it. And at the same time, we saw these wirehouse-type products with 6-7% annual cost loads and all of that basically disappear because people realize that's just not possible to keep up with. Now I'm kind of seeing the reverse again, meaning for the last few years, I think the smart institutional investors, they get it, they keep it as a core allocation, and there are a few new entries in that space. But I'm actually very encouraged by more and more high net worth individuals even though regulation doesn't make it easy, I'll be the first one to admit it's not an easy thing to, uh, an easy asset class to invest in. There are lots of paperwork and questions and all of that stuff. But still, on, on my side of things, I, I see a steady stream of individual investors all around the world, really. I don't deal with the U.S. investors, but I can see what's going on in, in, in our HQ. And so I do think that the private investors are starting to see the benefits of what you just said, Jerry, the safe set of hands, really, when we go through these crises have always been the CTAs. And then the enormous benefit that we add to an overall portfolio, I think more and more people are getting that. It's also helped, frankly, by people like Chris Cole, who writes about building a 100-year portfolio, even though we may not agree completely with the way they do it. I think the idea of getting people to see that you should build your portfolios 
to be able to cope with different regimes and not just think that what we've seen the last 20 years is what we should expect in the future. And you're right, Jerry, I think performance, which hasn't been stellar, has held back the further adoption or the increased adoption of trend following. But that's just a function of time. At some point, we'll see equities and other assets classes uh, take a breather and maybe even go into some kind of large correction. And I expect trend followers will do what they normally do. And that's where we see uh, the floodgates open. So I think it's interesting that maybe it goes through phases like this. And maybe at some point, again, we're going to see institutions come back. Or maybe hopefully we'll see both of them come back in bigger numbers as we start getting more of a question mark in terms of the traditional 60-40 portfolio construction, which truly has benefited from one, lower interest rates for 40 years and also negative correlation between the two asset classes for the past 20 years. That's not normal, but it takes a long time for people to realize that. Can I go off on a typical Jerry uh, of course. rant? Or... Yeah. That's a good history, but I want to add to your history. And mm-hmm. that is that at some point, I was in the midst of that managed futures uh, high fee business. And at the same time, I had maybe $1 billion under management with ridiculous fee structure. And that industry was, it was doomed to failure and to give way to mutual funds, which haven't really taken off. And maybe they've been eclipsed by the need for a managed futures CTA trend following ETF. And then the other half of my business, a billion dollars, was an institutional business with very uh, reasonable, normal, lowish fees, let's say. So I had this uh, two, 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 two-pronged approach. But then that was going well. And then at some point in the 90s, the European CTAs came in and with this sort of hybrid approach of we'll mix in some modern day money management and risk management, mostly volatility targeting, with the classic trend following. And these firms began to grow. They're very impressive with their PhDs and intellect and uh, marketing. And the money started to flow in this direction. And they were very successful and the performance was good. So it was deservedly. And then the fees maintained. You were able to maintain the fees, but it became the situation where over time, it had to be trend following plus other aspects, not the classic with the big drawdowns and lumber and Bitcoin, but it had to be this massaging of the trend following in order to keep the two in 20 or one in 20 or whatever those really nice fees used to be. And then at some point, the rest of us got hit with redemptions. And then I think there was one European CTA who said, well, if you're going to invest in classic trend following, then we're going to start charging 50 basis points. I forgot who that was, H2O or someone. I forgot who it was, actually. Yes, GSA. That's who it was, right. So, And then that revolutionized and torpedoed, you know, the classic trend following incentive fee, management fee business. And then I think over the recent years, the move, the European CTAs and others in the U.S., let's say, and have who adopted and it became sort of uh, normal to add different strategies to this to the trend following: short term, mean reversion, uh, carry trade, pattern recognition, plus the massaging of the trend following. That I think has not worked as well, and there has been some ab- total abandonment of trend following, or pretty much. And then uh, continuing this trend following, non-classic trend following, that has not worked as well as the darn classic trend following over the past few years. But that's only practiced by really small firms like mine. So I think one of the things that would be, uh, we would probably be gaining more assets if my firm was larger, or if there were the bigger firms who had a a tremendous commitment to the more classic uh, breakout trend following, which has done a lot better. So I think to some degree, we have these self-inflicted wounds and because of the zigzagging and then not really offering the, the pure product by the larger firms that could have taken advantage of the recent uh, market, you know, the sell-off of last year better than more of the non-classic trend following. Yeah, no, I think those are are great points, and I agree with that. And also, I think it shows to me, which is something actually that I've always believed in, and that is that narrative really matters. I mean, some people, I remember sort of on our side, there was an attitude from our founder for many years that 
the most important thing we should focus on was really just producing performance, which we did. But it didn't really mean that then a lot of people would find you and, and invest with you, that that's a different thing. So you had to be good at both the performance side, but also, as you say, you know, servicing your clients, finding new clients and, and you know, what we call marketing, I guess. But I think narrative really matters. And, and I certainly also think that not to blame anyone, but there has also been certainly people who were very well respected and still are very well respected in our industry that started to kind of publicly abandon trend following and really kind of say, okay, well, it, maybe it doesn't work as well as it used to do. And, and therefore, we need to do something different. Now, interestingly enough, as you rightly point out, classical trend has certainly had a resurgence and actually done pretty well. If, even if you look at the SockGen trend index, I mean, we're in the third pretty solid year so far in a row and many other strategies. I mean, just look at things like, you know, uh, value-based investing and stuff like that has really struggled along with many hedge fund strategies for, for years. So I think you're right. I think there is definitely some of the lack of... Um, Success is, is self-inflicted. On the other hand, you could say maybe we're not that interested in having the floodgates open like we saw after 2008 where everybody, or and in 2003, thereabouts after the tech bubble, maybe we just want to do our own thing and, and those who really believe and really... Because you also want the right investors. You don't want those who just buy it because it did well last year. You want people who really want it and they're going to stay with you for the the good times and the bad times. So so it's interesting. I mean, I think Omar is right that it's something that would be useful for to solve. Maybe we can't solve it per se, but I think the adoption of, of trend following, I think it will come back, as you said, once we've seen this relentless rally in equities take a bit of a pause. You've mentioned over historically, I think last week you mentioned a track. I don't remember the track record you mentioned, but I think it was maybe it was Dreis. Yeah. And there's track records out there that are really good. And you've mentioned this before, and they're very choppy. And so these guys were small. They're unwanted. This strategy, and I think Bill Dunn was correct. I think that's the most important thing is deliver the returns, be consistent. Our strategy can be very consistent, especially if it's the classic version of one entry rule, one exit rule, one stop loss rule, not a lot of other stuff going on, except that drawdowns and volatility in exchange for consistency. I think in our first 10 years, you've heard me say this before, I think we made money every year. Yeah. And we had big drawdowns. And people were like, I don't care. You're, make, you're my most consistent manager. And it was the simplest. And as, as Moritz mentioned last week, that's when I started my trek to, for complexity, right? Mm. So I had 10 year, winning years in a row. And so trading a simple system. And then I told myself, well, now's the time we have to become better and more complex and, and better. What's better? Well, let's get rid of some of these drawdowns. And you know what happens, you get rid of some of that consistency and some of those profits. It's all about how we interpret the word consistency, right? Because I think we've people have been conditioned to think of consistency as making 1% every month. I look at consistency as saying, well, we have the same profile to our returns that we've always had. That's consistent. It doesn't really matter whether we're up 5% one month or down three the other. I mean, it's the same type of profile. If you look at your returns or Don's returns, you know, in the last three years and you take it a three-year period from mid-2000s or mid-90s, it looks the same. That's the consistency. And I really truly believe that people don't fully appreciate that. And also, I think that we, and I've mentioned this before, and I don't really know how to phrase it otherwise, but I do think that we live in a world currently where kind of change is a bit of an enemy. People don't want too much change. And when we operate in a world where our strategy kind of thrives on change, maybe it just feels uncomfortable to be part of that. I don't know. I don't know. But it just strikes. The, Go ahead. It was a redefinition of trend following. It went from taking small losses, which we all do, limiting your losses, you know, you don't have to have a trailing stop. I mean, a stop loss, just sure. limit the losses. And that's a success of, of staying alive for a long term and then letting your profits run. And so somehow, though, that winning formula got changed around to, well, we'll let the profits run in some respects, but we're going to clamp down on this volatility. And so 
this became the norm. And so it was impacting everyone, even uh, the turtles and even me, where we thought the rule was, oh, if it's an open trade profit, let it go. And this is good volatility, even if it's downside volatility. You know, we have this mega profit. Now it's a nice profit or a big profit. This can no longer is acceptable. We need to lock it down, control that vol. And clients were like, oh, wonderful. You can give me my cake and I can eat it too. This is perfect. And yet I think this was the genesis of sketchy, weak, weaker performance because it's adding variables and adding non-system trades to the portfolio that inevitably was going to have some deterioration in performance. I mean, that's my radical view, which I've mentioned many times. These volatility targeting, it comes at a cost and the cost was delayed. But now I think it, we're seeing you know, degradation of performance based upon adding bad rules to the trend following. Yeah, and not that I want to turn this into sort of economics 101, but we kind of see it a little bit also in the real economy, right? That it has been, quote unquote, decided by authorities and central banks that recessions, we don't really like those, so we shouldn't have them anymore. So we'll do anything we can to keep growth positive at all times, at all costs. And I think it's exactly the same. You know, you, you can't get rid of it. You might be able to postpone it a little bit, but there is a cost and it's going to show up at some point. Nevertheless, it, it it tricks our minds to believe that, yes, you can have the cake and it's not it's not going to cost you anything until, of course, it does and it's too late. So anyways, we appreciate the comments and the questions, Omar, and the interaction. You mentioned just the turtles right now. Let's move on to a question that came in about your turtle days. This is from John, and he writes, as a turtle trader, when you were making 200% per year, what percentage of margin to equity were you using? Do you remember? I don't remember being told what margin to equity was. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> you know, look, we it's were probably just a good idea. In the account statement that I would look at every day, the only number I remember seeing was the you know, the sort of the year-to-date P&L or the okay. inception to date, the dollar amount. So, I, you know, as I've said before, initially in the first six months, I was down 35%. So after a while, I came in every day and I was just staring at minus 350,000. <laughs> I mean, try that every single day. That's the number I remember. It probably had my open positions as well. But no, I didn't see, I didn't see the amount uh, in the account. I didn't see anything other than my loss number. And it gets very depressing. But then we started making lots of money. I got my act together. I was a very slow starter. I didn't follow the rules. Yeah, I, and you know what? A lot of these terms that are used today, like like the Bible, I mean, frankly, they weren't used the first 10 years of my career either. I mean, it just didn't, yeah, it just didn't register with investors to look at it this way. And, and funnily enough, I think what's happened now that we throw all these ratios around and some of them are completely misunderstood and misused, yet they seem to be what people or what some investors, I should say, not all investors, seem to be fully guided by. Now, John also asks what kind of margin levels you use today at Chesapeake. And just for your context, if you don't remember from last week, Moritz and I shared roughly where we are in terms of that. And I think with, with, with Don, I would say 20, 25% is kind of roughly where we find ourselves on average. But do you, do you remember what, what you're running your program at nowadays? I think mine is more like 10 to 20 so maybe 15 on average. But I would say that I think margin is irrelevant because it doesn't keep up with what's going on in the markets as much. So I have added some um, numbers to my reports recently. You inspired me to embrace this the risk to stop. Yes, risk <laughs> to stop, yes. So I have my own numbers and ways of looking at that and my current positions based upon risk metrics and using the current ATRs you know, because a lot of my trades are a year old and the ATR is double, triple, quadruple. So I want to measure that on every single day as specifically as I can and know exactly how my positions have grown or in some maybe have, have gotten less fall recently. 
So I think looking at your positions in that particular way on a daily basis, using your own metrics and the current ATR is far superior to anything margin. No CTA cares about margin until the client ask them about it. Then we pretend, oh yeah, margin, oh yeah, it's so important. It's not important. It's not. And I'll explain to John one step further why it actually isn't as important as people might think. And that is different contracts have such a difference in terms of margin utilization. And therefore, what you, you if you are in certain markets, you might have a very high level of margin to equity, but it doesn't really mean that your risk is that much bigger. So it can, unless you really understand how, how it's calculated, it can be a very confusing number. And even if you can see all the details, it's a very meaningless number, frankly. And so what Jerry said is true and that you should use other ways of really measuring what the riskiness is of your portfolio. But John didn't stop with that, Jerry. He continues. How important is profit factor ratio when you develop a trading system? The higher the profit factor, the better. But what realistic profit factor is the minimum you would like to attain? What is the average range of profit factors for a good or great system? Now, just to be clear for everyone here, John defines, uh, and I'm probably sure that's universal definition, but John says that the profit factor, he defines that as the gross profit divided by the gross loss, including commissions for the entire trading period. A profit factor of one would be break even, two would be good, Anything above three would be great. Some people say, John writes, high profit factor is one of the most important metrics of a robust trading system. What are your thoughts on this? Now, I don't actually look at this at all, really, in terms of, I don't know if you use that in your research backtest. Yeah, I think I agree with John. I think it's one of the most important. I think I use average win versus average loss. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably the most important thing that I look at. I want my average trade to be healthy, nice, big, juicy. And you'll get that with the longer-term systems. Because the longer-term systems stay in, let's say, a nice trend the whole way, and they just give back a lot at the end. Whereas a medium-term may get out once and then get back in halfway up, and then it's going to get out a little bit uh, better than the longer term system when the trend finally reverses. So, but for some reason, I'm just really particular. I'd like to have uh, longer term systems make me feel better because the average win is higher. And then I think also the average win versus average loss can be higher as well. So I think I like to look at these markets and these systems as I'm betting. So if I'm going to risk a dollar, I want to make three or 2.5 or 2.7. It's not a question of what I want or need, it's what the market will give me and the choice between the different look back periods and the different entry and exits for each system. So I just wanna take the best and try to ignore the equity stats and the drawdown of the portfolio and things like this. And just, I like to try to close my eyes and pretend all I can see is the trade, what happened in all of those trades and so I may have some really large trades, some big, huge winners like lumber and Bitcoin. But when I'm analyzing the system, I'm ignoring the drawdown in those markets uh, or the, in those trades. I'm looking to say this whole group of trades with this particular system, my average win is three times as large as my average loss. I'm going to risk one to make three. That's what I'm looking at and trying not to, to pay, place too much emphasis on the portfolio stats, sharp and drawdowns and things like that. So that's different than most people. But once again, it feeds right back into this conversation we always have about closed equity and open trade equity and letting profits run. If you're going to let profits run like you should, you can't pay too much attention to the drawdown that's going to occur using your system, using these parameters. And it could be a big drawdown, but the computer says... This system makes the most amount of money per unit of risk. So it's quite a bit different than what we were talking about earlier with this new way of looking at trend following, which is not looking at the trades per se, like I just mentioned. It is looking at the daily, weekly, monthly performance and sharp and the portfolio returns versus traditional trend following looks at maximizing the profit on your trade. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Question from Mark. This is actually kind of a follow-up, I think, that also from uh, a question that was raised with uh, Moritz and me, which we discussed last week. But I wanted to get your thoughts as well because I think Mark also mentioned that he wanted to uh, would like to hear from you as well. And that is, we talked about this earlier today that we use uh, a number of different timeframes. That's part of the diversification that sits within the models. And he was trying to get a little bit of guidance as to what exact, not exact, but what kind of rough timeframes do we look at individually? So I haven't raised this question with you on behalf of sort of roughly, Jerry, What, where, where do you start to get excited in terms of look back and, and how long, how far out do you go? Well, yeah, I was really enjoying the conversation on uh, the podcast about the research process and Moritz describing my research process, which he did a pretty good job, but then it got going on Twitter as well. And one of my friends on Twitter said he's never done a back test before. And I was like, oh, I'm very jealous. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you've never done a back test. But rather than jumping to the answer, I would encourage people to bring up some charts and put some breakout channels around these charts and see for mm -hmm. themselves what kind of uh, look back period is reasonable and uh, what look back periods kind of captures the bulk of these trends without uh, frequent whipsaws. And that's what I did as just an exercise a bunch of years ago. And then I told my researchers of these parameters that by just by looking at charts that kept me in the trends for the most part, but wasn't too short term that I kept getting knocked out. And they did research on my suggested parameters and they said, yeah, those are really good parameters. They're some of the best. And so I think I'm just trying to encourage people that you don't have to have a sophisticated backtest program. If you're willing to have one entry rule, one exit rule, and a stop loss, you can kind of see for yourself what is happening on these big trends. And then one could say, well, you're ignoring all the other markets. There's 50 or 100 big trends of, in all t of all time in all these markets. And I would say, that's true, but they dominate your performance. So get those right, and more than likely, it's not going to matter so much how you handle the ones that were small winners or small losers. So, but I would say that that's exactly what I did. So I sort of said, okay, this is as short term as I want to trade. Let's say the 100 day breakout and 250 day breakout, which sounds very long term. Although a lot of academic studies point to the 12 month window as a good time to look at trend following and momentum. And that's 250 days is about a 12 month window. So, and then I just said to myself, though, I don't want to get too short term than 100 day breakout and any longer term than 250. And so I'll just trade those two and a, a few in between. And I think um, that gives a pretty good performance, at least historically. Yeah. And I can kind of uh, back that up because we do from time to time run kind of a just to visualize to our clients and our prospects roughly why we end up being also longer term in the trend following space. So we run this massive simulation where we can see, you know, look back periods all the way down to 20 days and all the way up to, I think, 300 days or, or even more. And, and we have this process that just picks, okay, so which one was the best for each calendar year in the last 20 or 30 years? And of course, we can also see all the other uh, results, but it kind of highlights. And when you see that chart, you'll notice that I would say 80% of them are probably between 180 days and 250 days, actually, 80% of them. And even in 2008, although the best look-back period using this methodology was 50 days, it didn't mean that you didn't make a lot of money using 150 or 200 days or 250 days because that year, pretty much all time frames made money. I think maybe 2014 was somewhat similar. But... So I completely agree with you that you shouldn't be too too concerned about finding the best because there is nothing like the best. It changes slightly all the time, but it's a great range. And as I said, if in that range that I mentioned, I mean, I think those systems make the same amount of money. Yeah. So you're just adding diversification and acknowledging that you can't predict and that they're going to have their 
Some uh, the longer term may do better sometime versus in the shorter term will do better at other times. And I think when you look back on this performance and you're handed the sheet of paper and it says you're going to make a lot of money, you dig deeper and you're like, whoa, 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 but I am not going to put up with those drawdowns, even though you're going to make money, even though this is the most robust, maybe it's unnecessarily uh, too robust or maximally robust, but still you're not going to be satisfied. No, there's more going on here. I'm not going to be able to have a big profit and give almost all of it back sometimes, even though handling all the trades this particular way yields the most profit and, and certainly paying attention to the risk as well. And so this is why it gets rejected and there has to be fall targeting or other rules put in place, move your stop up, if you if you have a big profit, just move your stop up. And so these sort of things can creep in and they're not healthy and robust uh, to a system that only has one type of exit, as Moritz mentioned last week. Three different types of exits just crushes your sample size and you're in no man's land. And so how can this, since, you're, since it's possible to give back so much of this profit, how is the computer continuing to tell me that it makes the most amount of money. And that is because there's other things that are going on that are negative with the shorter term systems. One of the problems that CTAs acknowledge is you can't miss these big trends. So if you get out prematurely in lumber or Bitcoin or Tesla, which you could have done many times and a few times in Tesla, you've got to buy it again if it goes back up. So this has its own cost. The medium and shorter term strategies, they don't give back as much at the end, but they give up a lot of the trend before the end of the trend because you have to buy it again. You have to resize it with a, with a larger ATR. So now your position is smaller. And so there's pros and cons to all of these systems. And even the best ones, you know, basically they all make the same amount of money. And so there you have it. It's a really yeah. a big dilemma. Yeah, that's kind of the irony. And also, if you even if you look at the peer group that we that we were both part of, so to speak, when you look at performance long term, I mean they're kind of similar in some ways. Not at the same time, but in the very long run, they're not hugely different. But anyways, we've kind of already started on one of the topics that you wanted to bring up, which is this whole thing about research and backtest a process. And there's a couple of points I wanted to go into, but before I do. I wanted to ask you a question which I see from time to time creeping up, but I am not so sure we've really talked about it yet on the podcast. And that is, say that you're looking on your at your system and you want to, for whatever reason, you're looking at a backtest of it and you have to make a choice and you have two iterations of it, so to speak. My question to you is, what do you consider to be the most important thing, the maximum drawdown or the length? Of drawdown, meaning, would you be willing to accept a, a deeper maximum drawdown, but f then get shorter drawdowns in time, or would you say, no, actually, I prefer a shallower drawdown, even though the longest one might be a lot longer than others? Because I think that these are the two. We often, I think, we often think that investors are most worried about the maximum drawdown, which may be true, but there is a case that the length of drawdowns can be equally detrimental to the investor's kind of ability to hold on to the strategy. Yeah, I saw someone tweet this idea this week about the length of drawdown being sort of ignored. I guess I'm in favor of ignoring the, everything about the drawdowns, you know, especially the portfolio, the whole, the, my whole portfolio drawdown. I try to ignore that. I just want to pay attention to the trade stats and look at my systems in terms of, am I capturing enough of these trends? I think one of the lessons we've had over the past year or so is uh, we got to be nice to, to ourselves because we beat ourselves up about performance and systems and trend following is dead when there's no trends. And then we realize post-October, oh, that's right. This is what happens. I'm not in control. The markets take off. They're making all this money. I bought the breakout. I just don't, I, my goal is, my job is not to screw it up, let the tr profits run and follow the system. So I think a lot of this performance historically is, you know, is 
totally due, our lack of performance recently has been totally due to the lack of trends and the fact that we diversify. If we were stock only, yeah, we would have had better performance, but we know better than that. So I guess I'm really just in this camp of looking at my win-loss ratio. What am I betting $1 to make two or three? And I'm not going to pay too much attention to the patterns in the past and, and how the equity has flowed. I think that's kind of random. I think paying attention to these trade stats is much better. I know Richard, my friend, our friend Richard, he mentioned this week in a tweet that these long-term systems, they're really good because they allow the markets to, the path that the markets are going to take to be many different paths that can happen. Sort of the chart patterns of these trends, anything can happen in the future. And we're sort of really loosely letting that happen. And our trailing stop is so far below the market that if something we've never seen before, we can still participate in these long-term trends. And I think that's what I try to, I just like place almost no concern or interest in the the patterns of the past. I guess, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's perfectly fine. Yes, I did see that Rich had to send a few tweets out on that as well. So yeah, definitely interesting. Now, the other thing that maybe this kind of started the uh, the topic of kind of backtest research trading when you send over your comments to me was I think it was originally something that came up in our in a conversation with Perry Kaufman. And this is a little while ago. People can go back and listen to it on the podcast. But he described how he dynamically picks the markets to trade based on how well they have done in a recent period. And I actually think his period is pretty short term, a couple of months or something like that. And then you sent me a quote, and I, I think it's a quote from Rob, but correct me if I'm wrong here. And the quote is, picking the markets to trade based on recent trend strength and performance was an epic fail. It was dismal, doing much worse than the most simple thing you could do which is to just take every trade. Now, I mean, it could have been, could have been one of your quotes here, here, Jerry. So, pick up from here, and and where do you want to where do you want to go with this? Oh yeah, I remember that discussion you and Rob had, and he was uh, apologizing to Perry that uh, he may disagree with right. Perry on so, this on his ideas, and so that was a Rob quote, and I followed up by saying, uh, "Trend following requires us to take every trade, to take every trade, and treat every trade the same way." So once again, you know, if you start with these principles of backtesting, which is maximum sample size, all the market trading, all the markets the same way, the same unit size, you're just doing everything the same for the rest of your life and nothing special. It's not special if it's a, a small profit or a big profit, then you really limit your ability to research. You know, if you start with this hard-nosed approach that it's all about robustness, and the most important thing is to only have one entry rule and one exit rule and to trade every market the same way, the same unit size, don't make these changes, then you're like, oh, okay, maybe this guy has a good idea about relative strength, and but it's not going to pass muster with my ph philosophy. So a classic trend following pays attention to all the data. It doesn't overweight recent data. And I really, the list of possible things to test is pretty short. And, you know, over the years when I've added markets, natural, I remember adding natural gas and Italian bonds, and I started with 20 markets, I'm up to 120 now. There was no research because I'm going to trade all the markets the same way. And there may be some correlation to some of these new markets, but, you know, I'm not going to try to fine tune my correlations. They're going to change over time. You know, I'm the one who trades heating oil and crude and unleaded at the same size because I've seen I made 30% in heating oil December 1990 and crude kind of sat there. So yes, they're correlated sometimes, but then all of a sudden they're not correlated. So there's not a lot of research to do when you trade this classic strategy that emphasizes very few variables, as few as possible and maximum sample size. Yeah, no, I mean, as they say, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And uh, I think trend followers, example, you know, it's a great example of that. And then coming back to what we talked about earlier today with the narrative, maybe that narrative is just too simple for people to fully buy into that you can do exactly as what you what you said. Now, funnily enough, and I don't know in what context this came up, but I think there is, you know, and this has nothing to do really with finance, but I see a lot of people complaining about 
you know, all the things that's going on in the world and how complex life can be and so on and so forth. And of course, in the investment world as well. And I'm thinking to myself, well, here you have something which once you get it, once you've done it, and as you said, you don't even have to overcomplicate your research process, so to speak. There's enough literature out, there's enough content on this podcast to build your own trading system that will probably compete pretty well with what we do. So if you want to uncomplicate your life and and certainly the investment part of your life, which I actually think is a really important part because I don't expect necessarily that 20, 30, 40 years from now that there's going to be a lot of social security that we can rely on. People have to kind of fend for themselves. Well, here you have a strategy that is perfectly suited for uncomplicating your life but still make decent returns. Still not quite settling in with people yet, but maybe one day. Well, I think it's the advent of sharp ratio and applying sharp or any sort of volatility measurement, downside volatility. No, not upside, not downside, not sideways. This is what corrupted. It was self-inflicted. We said, let's let profits run. We're going to treat profits differently. If there's a major drawdown in a, mid, in a big, huge profit, no big deal. But then a group comes in and says, no, it is a big deal. We can do better. We adopt the traditional way of looking at markets and sharp is uh, perfect and we'll make that happen. And so it was raising unnecessarily raising the bar on ourself to where we no longer had a free pass. You know, if you're up 50% for the year, but a few months later, you close out your trades and you're up 30% a year for the year, that's no big deal. You're a hero. Oh, no. we got to get rid of that 20% drawdown from peak equity. And so the industry, the CTAs, did it to themselves in order to, uh, maybe they really believed it. Maybe it was a cynical ploy to maintain uh, high fees. Or it was certainly something clients wanted to hear. And so my previous description of how trend following works and my trend following works, I just don't think that's going to be embraced by institutions and traditional investors when there's others out there saying, no, that's totally unnecessary. We can alter and adjust classic trend following into something that we think is much better. And that's a much easier sell than turtle trend following. Yeah, which is also why I love uh, one of the tweets. I love most of your tweets, but especially the one you sent out here in this week. You said, in order to maximize your rate of return slash risk ratio and to increase your survival chances, you must have a low sharp ratio, which is which is true. And also, by the way, and, and we talked about this maybe or, or, or recently, at least on the podcast, I think people for, forget that the sharp ratio was not invented to be used on individual investments. It's a portfolio tool. It's not meant to you know, measure on a single strategy. And again, because this often leads people to think that if you add to your portfolio only strategies with a high sharp, that you get a stronger and better portfolio. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what you get, probably. So yeah, which, but then to your point about then came some, you know, people came in and said, oh, by, by the way, we can do trend following with a higher sharp, for example. And then it became popular. But it actually ties into one of the uh, other points that you mentioned, and it must have come up somewhere that you've in your conversation. And that is, how can a young CTA distinguish themselves from larger, more experienced CTAs? And I think that's probably what some people did back then saying, oh, we can provide this, but with a much nicer risk reward ratio. And maybe that worked for a while. But to the question nowadays, Jerry, since you uh, put it here, and, and is there a way for, for newer managers to distinguish themselves nowadays? Well, sort of a trick question that I wanted you to ask me. So I think, uh, I think ironically, just be more classic trend following. Add single stocks. Add a little bit of Bitcoin. Look people, look these investors in the eye and say, no, we're not going to do that. And then you're in the minority, you'll kind of stand out. The tremendous refocus on the outlier. I mean, I think that is the, you know, I have to keep reminding myself, no, sacrifice all of these medium-term profits. Let them all go back to being a loss because that might be what it takes to hang on to the Tesla, the Bitcoin, the lumber, canola. That's another huge trend. So sacrifice everything to capture that outlier. 
And I have talked to CTAs, young CTAs over the years, and I have critiqued their systems in the same way that I have mentioned on this podcast, and I mention on every podcast. I have I'm not original at all. And I'll point out what I've said on this, like I've said on this podcast, that you know these are not good ideas. You cannot do these type of things. And their response is, yes, I understand that this is not good, but I need to do this in order to be different or to fit in. You know, Chesapeake mm. is large and well-known. I can't compete against them. But essentially what they're saying is, unless I do something I shouldn't do, which is crazy. You, you know, it's, you're not going to get anywhere with it. You've got to pick the time where you say, you know what? I took a risk. I had a non-robust system, bad ideas, bad rules. Now I've got, I made a lot of money. I'm, now I'm, uh, people know who I am. I'm famous now. Now I'm going to revert back to a more robust way of trading. I mean, but it's just nuts. The road to where Dunn is or Chesapeake was is a long, hard road, and it should take a long time. And you should feel like that over the five, 10 or 15 or 20 years, you're going to learn and get better. And then the way that I've learned to get better was, as Moritz said last week, was to get rid of all my complexity mm. and just make it more simple and uh, more robust. Yeah, no, absolutely. Another tweet that you sent out was, concentration is the best way to maximize returns, but diversification is the best way to increase the odds of delivering returns. Just like evolution, the key is realizing that the more perfect you try to become, the more vulnerable you generally are. We probably touched upon this, but I wanted to hear your... Yeah, that's a good quote. It's not mine. I got it, I think, okay. from Morgan Housel. Oh, and it's okay. a very good quote. And I think we on this podcast, uh, you and I and Moritz have debated 50 markets or 150 markets and having conviction and not being concentrated. And is there a cost of too much diversification? And I thought, hey, I wish I would have thought about this. I could have said it. It may not have changed your mind, but I do think it's a very good quote that yes, with, with a lot of markets, you're not going to make a lot in any single market or sector, but it's going to improve your consistency. And I really like that quote. I think it's uh, one of the best ones I've heard in a while. I saw a quote from uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Andreas Kleno, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was him. Something along the lines, you can lose money by following your rules or by breaking your rules. One is just much easier to explain to investors. So That's funny. Yeah, I, I also tweeted this week that if you don't follow your rules, you certainly shouldn't expect to make money, but you may not make money anyways. So I think that's the problem with trading is uh, you certainly shouldn't expect good results if you don't have good rules and if you don't follow them. And that's the problem with rules is that they we see the back test and we like these rules based on the back test. And then we live day to day and we say, this rule is not going to do what I need it to do on this trade. And once again, that's what trend following is not good at. On this trade, it's saying, I have no idea. Hell, two of my systems are long and two are short. I have no idea on this trade. I just know if I look at all the trades over my history, over my career, that's going to give me the best odds of making the most amount of money but then we say to ourselves, but I am mostly concerned about right now, this lumber trade, this Bitcoin give back. I don't like it. What should I do? And the answer is nothing. Although you can build in other rules that effectively do something that it shouldn't be doing. It's an optimized rule. It's a second or third or fourth exit rule. The first one to get hit, I'll, I'll, I'll execute it. Well, that's no good. And we think that if we just follow rules, we're absolved, but we're not because some of these rules are not good rules. You are, of course, Jerry, referring to one of my set of rules, which I, I know you picked probably up with uh, my conversation with Moritz. And that that is one of the things that uh, my trend-following model does. It has a number of rules to choose from, so to speak. On the other hand, and I didn't want to get into a big conversation or discussion with Moritz about it, but of course, these things are all based on long-term experience and sample size and all of that stuff. So I think there is nuances as to how to do things, whether you have one rule that just has multiple look-back periods or whether you have a couple of different types of rules. As far as I recall, I think we had discussions about rules where 
I don't know if you still use them, but where you say if it's too far away from its recent high or something like that, it could also trigger an exit. But I do think there is a little bit of, as long as you can get the sample size in your research, I don't think the rules have to be exactly the same. But anyways, that's a small point of, of difference of opinion, perhaps. Jerry, anything else you want to bring up today? Or have we covered most of the points we wanted to cover? I think we've covered them. We had some great questions and yeah, everything flowed well. Yeah. Well, if you come up, uh, think of something, uh, let me know. In the meantime, I'll just run through the performance so far. Uh, we're in kind of middle of uh, July and the beta 50 index is down about 1.08% as of Thursday. Although I do think Friday, yesterday was a good day. So it may not be quite as much as that. Up 4.96% for the year. SockGen CT index down pretty much the same, 1.14% for the month, up 5.3% for the year. SockGen trend index down just shy of 2%, really up 5.4% for the year. And the short-term traders index for a change is up for the month, 0.37, uh, and up 1.37 for the year. MSCI World Index continues to go up 1.19% so far in July, up 15.5% year-to-date, and the bonds are up 55 basis points so far this month. Anything else you thought of? Yeah, I did see one tweet worth mentioning that I yeah. found in a George, our friend George Coyle's uh, Raw Materials that he puts out. Yeah, And uh, this was a really good quote. And I think this sums up a lot of what I believe in my research process. It says, he says, understand, don't memorize, learn principles, not formulas. I have a lot of formulas, but it's an outgrowth of understanding and learning my principles and sticking to the principles. I think that's a very good quote for uh, robust caveman trend followers. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, um, before we wrap up, let me just say that we know, of course, that your time is an unrenewable resource. So we appreciate you lending us an hour or two each week to keep up with the podcast and to learn and fail and get up with us to walk towards this journey of figuring out how to best trade and invest in an uncertain and sometimes crazy world. And for that, we are ever so grateful. On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you did, please head over to iTunes and leave that rating and review that we so much appreciate. Next time or next week, Mark is joining me. So make sure you uh, keep your questions coming. You can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to answer all of them as soon as we can. And of course, feel free to uh, follow us, all of us, uh, on Twitter. From Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.